thought that was a nice intro, right? Sort of get you guys a little bit pepped up before everyone starts stoning me today uh, and throwing stuff at me. <laughs> I'm trying to curry some favor here. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all. Uh, if you are visiting, welcome. It's good to have you. Any new faces here, you're welcome. Please stay behind. Have a cup of coffee afterwards with us. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Um, if you're not new, you can leave quickly. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We want all of you to hang out and build community with us. We love it. Just two quick announcements. One family announcement. Uh, Derek and Lindsay, part of our eldership team, have been praying and seeking the Lord, and they feel like there's a season for them where they're going to be stepping off eldership, and we just wanted to honor them publicly and just thank them for all they're doing. They're part of our deacon team. They're still part of the life of the church. We just want to let you guys know about that. And then the second announcement for us this morning is we are, as you know, transitioning to a new venue. How many of you know we're going to a new venue? In fact, we were meant to meet there this morning, but none of you showed up, so I came this up. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, that new venue is underway. The good news is it's starting to make some real progress now. We actually have sheetrock on the walls, and so if you haven't seen it and want to get a sense of what the space looks like, it'll be a great opportunity for you to go over there and have a look at it. We'll keep it open in between the meetings. You can just walk in there and have a look. Just don't hurt yourselves because it's a construction site. But here's the deal, right? As things progress, we're starting to plan for this new phase of our existence. The auditorium that's going to be that side, which is really going to replace this auditorium, is triple the size of the space that we have in here. So God's been really, really good to us, and He's blessed us in a huge way. But with that, obviously, is going to come some changes, some processes are going to be updated. We're going to look at things like check-in with the kids, so just expect all of those things. But also, what we've been doing as an eldership team is praying, and we've met with the deacons this week. And what we've decided to do, we just feel like the right thing to do for us as a church in the next season we're going into, is for us to move from two services back to one service. Who's excited about that? <laughs> okay, so, all right. Well, that's okay then. Uh, hey. So we're going to do it at 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we're just going to get it done with in the day. We thought one service. I'm just kidding. We're going to split the difference. So right now we meet at 9 and 11, and we will keep meeting here at 9 and 11 until we go to the new venue. Don't be coming here at 10 next week, please. Let me be very clear. We will still be at two services in this venue. We can't facilitate all the, the amount of people in this one room. But when we get there, which we're hoping will be sometime in July, we're going to go back to one service, which will be at 10 a.m. in the morning. Now, I also want to say, yes, let's give the Lord a hand. Amen. 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 I know some of you have been praying for this moment. Now, Lily's shaking her head there. She's like, yes, thank you, Lord. Um, you know, obviously going back to one service means that we need, you know, there's less pressure on volunteers and people that are serving. However, I want to say this. We want to be really intentional about how we build our teams here. And so we do know that God's got a plan for our church, and He builds His church. So how long will we be at one service? I have no idea. It could be months. It could be years. I don't know. It could be weeks. I have no idea how long it will be. But what we want to do is we want to continue to grow our capacity. And so if you aren't serving and you feel like you've got something to offer this church, believe me, you do. If God's brought you here, you've got something to offer us. Then please remember to scan those QR codes behind your seat. There's a section in it that says volunteer opportunities or opportunities to serve. Just go see what suits you. Some of them are going to be chores, uh, which are going to be miserable for all of us to do. Some of them are going to be passions, but we need both. So please, we want to keep building this team so that when God does shift things again, we're ready for it, and we can do what God wants us to do. Amen? Amen? Cool. Thank you. So by the end of the day, everybody, that means you too, Miss Canal, are going to be signed up as volunteers. Great. Thank you so much. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking, but just go have a look. But Miss, I wasn't joking. You need to sign up, buddy. Okay. So this morning, we're going to be diving back into our Revelation series. We're looking at the seven seals, as you guys know. For those of you that have been 
uh, I suppose, part of the Revelation series from day one, uh, and in particular this section, this next section. You're probably wondering, you know, we've been talking about the seven seals for weeks now. How come that, that's very important, that code right there? Um, just whoever's trying to connect to the screen, we're going to see all of their stuff, so that's cool that it disappeared. <laughs> uh, anyway. You're probably wondering, we've been talking about the seven seals for two weeks, but we haven't spoken about any seals, right? So what's happening? Well, here's what's been going on, and it's really important. The reason why we haven't actually got into the seals yet is up until now, God, through John, the person that's been exposed to this vision, has been laying a very important and critical foundation for us to launch off of as we go into the seals. And I say that because this morning we're going to hear some stuff that's going to be really uncomfortable, stuff that's... Maybe not going to make us feel all that good inside when we hear the things that are going to come out of some of these seals. But it's in remembering the foundation that we have, that God is on the throne, that He is victorious, that He is ruling and reigning, that we can remember that no matter what we are going to face in the future of our lives, in the future of this world, God has got everything in His control. And so we have to take encouragement from that, and that's why God's purposefully been building up to this point, because He wants us, His church, to know that He's got this. So let's think about some of the things that we've covered already, just real quick. In the first sort of week that we went through this, we looked at chapter 4, and we met God in His fullness, sitting on His throne, ruling from heaven, the center of the universe. John gets taken up into heaven in this vision, and he literally gets put at the center of the universe. And I say the center of the universe because wherever God is, is the center of the universe. He rules everything from that point. And we saw in chapter 4 how God looked after Noah through the judgments that they were about to endure. And that how through that rainbow in heaven, he's promising us that no matter what we go through, he has a plan. And so no matter what is in store in the future, no matter how dark it may look, God has a plan. And just like he took Noah through it, he's going to take us, his people, through it. And you know why? Because we have the ark, and the ark is called Jesus. We also saw that God was worthy to be worshipped as a creator. Remember those four funky living beings with all the eyes and the crazy stuff and the wings and doing all sorts of things there. They were worshipping God as the creator God of everything, the God who intentionally created this earth. Not by accident, not by some cosmic event, but because he wanted to intentionally create us. And just so you know, we as human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the, 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 the most highest beings that he could have created on this earth. That's who we are, and he loves us. In fact, we said that one of the greatest gifts we have, even before salvation, is the gift of existence. I mean, none of us had to exist, right? But all of us do exist today because God appointed for us to exist, which means God's got a plan for you and for me and everyone in this room, whether you choose to believe in him or not. He has a plan for your life. The decision is yours to make a choice to follow him, but he has chosen you for this time and for this season. Then in chapter 5, we saw that God in his right hand was holding this scroll, and the scroll was sealed, and it was sealed with seven seals. And that picture of a scroll being sealed reminds us that the perfect plan of God is complete. It's not in motion. It's not being thought about. God is not up there trying to wonder what is he going to do next. He knows what he's going to do, and he's about to reveal his plans and his purposes to us. The challenge was that that scroll was sealed. And a sealed scroll presents an unhopeless, or a hopeless future, a future with no hope. Why? Because in the scroll lies all the plans and purposes of God, which includes salvation, destiny, inheritance, all the good stuff that we have. And so if nobody could open it, what we're saying is nobody can carry forward the plans of God. The good news is there was somebody who was found worthy. He's the king of kings, the alpha and the omega, Mark. Not omega, omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, and he's the lion of the tribe of Judah that roars over them. 
It's such a powerful picture. The same lion who roars over the sin is the same lamb who died for them. In other words, who we meet at the end is up to us. We can meet the lamb or we can meet the lion, but we're going to meet one of them. And because of his sacrifice, because of what he did on the cross, the finished work of the cross, Jesus was given authority, authority to open the scroll and in some sense, you know, release all of God's, well, not in some sense, in all sense, release God's plans and purposes. And it's at that moment in time that all of creation, everybody, the living beings, the elders around the throne, and the multitudes and multitudes of angels bowed down and worshiped God, not only as the creator of everything, but as the redeemer of it all. And it's with that backdrop, knowing that God is in control, that he's got us, that his plan is perfect, that we go into this next phase of the vision. We're going to cover four seals this morning. And you might know them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Sounds funky. I get shakes when I think about it. <laughs> okay, everyone's not so excited. Okay. Anyway, turn with me to Revelation 6. I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we're going to go. Father, thank you that your command to us as your church is to go through the entire counsel of your word. Not just some parts that we like, some parts that make us feel comfortable, but every part. Some of the parts are going to challenge us, Lord, we know that. Some of the parts are going to make us feel uncomfortable at times. But every single part and every single word and every single paragraph in this entire word of God is filled with hope. A hope that is found in you, Jesus. And so I pray that as we go through this this morning, Lord, that you would bring revelation, that you would bring peace to our hearts, and that you would bring great comfort to us, Lord, as we look at this plan of yours unfolding for all of eternity. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Revelation 6, 1. I'm going to just read the first bit of it because I want to just touch on some things here because it's going to help us to position everything that we go through this morning. It says this, Now I watched, and this is John speaking. He's in the same vision that he's been in since chapter 4, verse 1. This is not another vision. It's one vision that continuously unfolds. He sees different aspects within this vision. It's not a different vision every time. It's one vision. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. Dun, dun. So this scroll contains the plans and purposes of God, right? Which we've just mentioned. And so Jesus, by opening the first seal, is essentially saying that he has the authority to release all of this now into existence. And that means from this point onwards, he's in charge. His plans are going to be brought to fruition for us as his people, for us as his church, but also for the entirety of the world. And so I want to spend a few minutes on this issue of timing. Because the way I'm going to explain it this morning, you have to understand the context that I'm coming from. Timing is important when we get to these judgments within the book of Revelation. Because if we understand the timing, we understand how these seals or these judgments are going to impact not only the world, but also us as the church. How do they affect us today? So how has Revelation generally been viewed throughout the ages? Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not being prescriptive in anything I do. Eschatology is one of those things, the study of end times, is one of those things that, to be honest, none of us will know in its entirety until we get to heaven. And so you might have a very different view that I have this morning, and that's okay. You don't have to fight with me or stone me or throw things at me. Please don't do that. Um, you can have a different view as long as we agree on the core fundamentals of our faith. And one day when we get to heaven, you'll see I was right all along. Anyway, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So there's three ways that the book of Revelation is viewed. The one is that it deals with history past. So when people read the book of Revelation, they read it as if this book applied to the first century church, the church scattered around modern-day Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, old-day Asia Minor, and that everything that's mentioned has already happened. It's happened, it's done, it's been dealt with, and it's gone. 
I don't believe that that's the correct interpretation. The second way that this book is interpreted is that it's a continuous story of history, which is better because it really is. But that every single event that we see happen in the book of Revelation is sequential in order. In other words, certain things have to happen before the next thing can happen, and then the next thing can happen, and the next thing can happen. And so we live in these dispensations, different ages, different times that are going to come. The third way people look at the book of Revelation or interpret it is that it's speaking only purely about future events, events that are going to happen at some distant moment in time. And then when you mix into all of these views, the view of the rapture, which basically says from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, the church will be raptured up into heaven, tells us that everything we're about to read now can only happen once the church is in heaven. Okay? And that's if you view the rapture as a reality. Now, again, I'm not going to fight with you on any one of these things. I'm just giving you what the current status is in terms of how you can interpret the book. But since I'm teaching, I have to give you my view and what I believe. You see, the challenge I have with any one of those views, my personal challenge, is that in some way, sense, and form, Jesus is not yet on the throne in different views. He's going to get on the throne. He's going to start ruling and reigning. But right now, we're living in this fallen, broken world under the control of the enemy. I don't think that that's necessarily correct. And I believe that there's a fourth way that we can interpret the book of Revelation. It's the view that I hold to personally. It's this view that instead of waiting for some distant time in the future for Jesus to take his place in fullness of his authority, he has done that and he is doing that right now. I believe Jesus is seated on the throne. I believe his kingdom was initiated when he came to this earth. Mark chapter four, 1 four, verse 14 says this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. Not will be fulfilled, not may be fulfilled. The time, what you have been waiting for, has been fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Greek word for at hand there is that Greek word engidzo, and it means to make near. It means, in South African language, now, now. <laughs> Nobody knows what that means, right? In South Africa, we have a different way of speaking about timing, right? So just now is any time between now and sometime. You know, later on is later on. Now, now is like, now. It's going to happen any second now. Jesus is saying now, now. That he's saying the time is fulfilled. Now, now. The kingdom of God is now, now. Anyway. Okay, I'm just being funny. So Jesus is telling us that by him coming to this earth, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is now, now, which is pretty great and pretty interesting. And if we draw that line of thinking to the crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection, I believe we find ourselves in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. We read this two weeks ago when Daniel said in the night visions, he saw one like the son of man riding in the clouds and he was presented to the ancient of days. And to him was given dominion and authority and a kingdom that could never be taken away from him. It's the same thing that we read about in Revelation 5 verse 7 when Jesus enters the throne room of God and takes the scroll from, Jesus, from God the Father's right hand and seats himself in the throne. And this tells me that the book of Revelation is not necessarily about a sequence of chronological events. It's a picture of what we are seeing for real. In other words, Jesus is on the throne. He's ruling and he's reigning. And his plans and purposes are being carried forward across the earth. And what we get to see in the book of Revelation, instead of a sequence of events, is the panoramic view of what's going on. And so as you encounter these next different sets of judgment, these next seven, seven, sevens, what you realize is not necessarily they're all happening I mean, sequentially, but they're happening from different perspectives. We're seeing one event in time, and that is the unfolding of the entire plan of God and the resumption of the universe in God's hands, and we're just looking at it from different places. All of which tells us that Jesus wins, he's on the throne, 
and that God's plan of redemption is underway, which is super exciting. Revelation 6 verse 1 continues, And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow and a crown, was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Okay, so I want to say this now. Um, don't get angry. I believe seals 1, 2, and 3 are speaking to the church. I believe these are directly positioned at the church. This is God speaking to his church. And so the question we have to ask is, who is this conqueror? Well, I believe it brings us to, first, to the first point for this morning, and that is the gospel is going to advance no matter what. Some commentators believe that the rider on this horse represents either an antichrist-type figure who is a false Jesus or maybe pagan armies that are bringing conquests against the church. However, I don't believe that that's the case. I believe that this horse and rider represents Jesus. And there's a few reasons why I believe that this first horse and rider is Jesus. Now, you might say, but isn't he opening the scroll and now he's on the horse? How does that happen? Look, he's God, bro. He can be on the horse and open the scroll at the same time. This is a vision, remember. I believe this is Jesus because, first of all, this rider is clothed in white. Throughout the book of Revelation, and you can, I've got many scripture references to give you, white is a color of purity and holiness. In other words, it is ascribed only to God. Some of us, as his saints, will be clothed in white too one day. Why? Because we are in Christ, and because of that, we get clothed in white. But because this rider is wearing white, I have to believe it's Jesus. Secondly, the rider has been given a crown. There is no other place in the book of Revelation and throughout the Old Testament prophecies where anybody else has been given a crown. No beast, no Charlotte, no harlot, no Babylon, no, no, none of them. No Antichrist ever gets a crown. Only Jesus gets the crown. And you know who else gets a crown? We do. Because we're in Christ. And so because Jesus is wearing the crown, it makes me think that this is Jesus. Incidentally, none of the other riders we're going to see this morning has a crown either. And then lastly, I believe it's Jesus because with very few exceptions in the book of Revelations, this term conquering is only ever ascribed to Jesus himself. He's the only one that can conquer. In fact, the one exception is this, Revelation 3 verse 21. The one who conquers, in other words, there's somebody else, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That's Jesus speaking to the seven churches, right? He says that almost to every single church at the end of his letters. This church was the church in Laodicea, incidentally. But what he's saying is to the one who conquers, notice that you can only conquer in Christ. And so Christ is the ultimate conqueror. Revelations 5 verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Not will conquer, not may conquer, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then Jesus himself said this in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Peace. Stillness, be calm. Even though in the world you will have tribulation, that word slipses, trouble, difficulties, persecution, take heart. I have overcome that word. Overcome is nikaio. It means to conquer, to prevail, to get the victory. And so I believe this rider represents Jesus. But if it represents him, then what is he doing? What does it mean he came conquering and to conquer? Well, first of all, I believe that it means that under the lordship of Jesus Christ, this church and every other church that follows the Lord can be encouraged because Jesus has triumphed over death and darkness. Jesus didn't die and he didn't stay in the tomb. He is alive and he's busy pulling forward the plans of God, which means he is riding in victory. 
We can be encouraged from that. It means that we can remember that because he's been crowned and he has the victory, when we go out and proclaim the gospel, we can expect the victory too. Now, it might not come immediately. We might not see it. But because he is the conquering king and we're preaching his gospel, we can expect the victory in preaching the gospel too. That's exciting. And lastly, it's a beautiful picture of Jesus riding into the world using the mechanism that he does to conquer it. And that mechanism that I believe is being represented on this horse is the gospel. The first horse represents the unleashing of the gospel across the world. Think about it. Jesus came to this earth. In that moment, he fulfilled everything that God wanted him to fill. From that moment, the gospel was preached. And so I believe we saw the initiation of the gospel going forward in the earth. But there is something that we need to realize. He says he came out to conquer, but he is still conquering. In other words, the gospel is still advancing. It hasn't stopped. In fact, it's part of our vision here, to know Christ and to make him known. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 12, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded and know this, I will be with you until the end of the age. There's an end of the age coming, but right now the gospel is advancing. We, as Christians, as believers, have the duty on us to present the gospel and know that in front of us, the rider on the white horse is leading the charge. We're not somewhere behind him, hiding away in the bushes. No, he's going forward, and we follow him, and we bring this gospel to this world. What's more, because Jesus will continue to ride and advance his kingdom, we have to understand this, and this is important, that he will do it no matter how much hardship the churches face. Sometimes we think when the church is in hardship, Jesus is going to stop. Okay, hang on, let's pause, let's regroup, let's regather. No, Jesus is going to continue on his mission, whether we face hardship and whether we face persecution. His mission will prevail. And that raises something. Because in Western Christianity, we have in some ways been taught to embrace an unrealistic or romantic view of the gospel. We look at the advance of the kingdom as something that's safe. We've never been called to safety, friends. We've been called to be a risky people, a people who take great risks for the king and the kingdom. It's a view where we believe that there'll be no pain and no suffering, no hardships in this life as we present the gospel to the world. And the challenge with that, let me tell you right now, is that when difficulties come or opposition rises up against us, then all of a sudden our naive faith starts to crumble like a pack of cards. Jesus never promised us that it would be easy. He never did. Anywhere in the Bible. And if anyone's told you that it is easy, I'm sorry to burst your bubble this morning. Remember, this is my interpretation. You can choose to believe it's easy. But I don't think it is. Jesus is preparing us this morning. He's reminding us that there is a battle ahead. That he's riding in front of us and he will take the charge. And he will win the war. However, it's going to come at a cost. A cost for all of us. The Bible says that we should take up our crosses daily. What does that mean? Does it mean that my cost is the same as your cost? No. Everyone's cost is different. Some people are called to die for the gospel. Not everybody is called to die for the gospel. Other people are called to have their cost count against them in some other way. But believe me when I say this, there is a cost that we have to bear for the advancement of the kingdom. And I want to tell you it's a privilege. And that brings us to our second point. Because the church is victorious doesn't mean that the church is exempt from suffering. Let me say that again. We are victorious. But in no way, shape, or form does being victorious exempt us from suffering. In fact, tribulation should be expected. I wonder if you've noticed, if the first horse represents Jesus and the gospel going forward, who released the, 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 these judgments? Who actually brought them about? Question, who, who did it? 
Jesus. He opened the seals. He's taking forward the plans and the purposes of God. The gospel is advancing, so we should expect persecution. In fact, whenever the gospel is preached, we know that persecution will follow. That's the promise that we have in Scripture. Revelation 6.3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. That word, great sword, will become important short, shortly. But what I believe the red horseman tells us is that part of our suffering as the church is going to be from persecution. Remember, some people will translate this as saying, well, this means that there's going to be lots of war in the world. We'll get to war later. Believe me, it's coming. There's going to be war. But it's not what it's saying here. Here it's saying that the church can expect persecution. I know it doesn't sound great. But if we ignore the persecuted church, then what we need to do is basically ignore one of the major themes in the book of Revelation. In fact, one of the major themes in the book of Revelation is how the church will be persecuted, especially as the time draws near. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 10 verse 34. He said, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That word sword is the same great sword that we see in Revelation chapter 6. And it's actually the Greek word makaira. And what it means is it's speaking about a sacrificial knife. This is not a sword that you would use to go to battle. It's a dagger. It's the same sword that is mentioned in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham goes to slay his son Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice to God. In fact, that's where we first hear slay and slaughter. This is a tiny little sword. It's not a warring sword. You're not going to beat an army with it, but you can kill somebody with it. And so when we consider the context of the original audience who was literally being killed for their faith, because remember, this word applies to them then, and it applies to us today. We have to understand that that interpretation makes sense. In Smyrna, the believers were dying because they were Christians. And what God is preparing us is saying, be ready for persecution. It's going to come. And yes, granted, please, Lord, that none of us in this room are the ones called to die for our faith. faith. But please, Lord, if we are, give us the strength to do it. And it wasn't just the churches then. Think of Stephen, martyred for his faith, the face like an angel, looking at Jesus in the clouds, and he's killed. Think about Paul, every single great apostle that lived, barring John, who died of natural causes after they tried to boil him. He died himself, but every one of them died for their faith. And it's not just the old church. Go throughout history, and you will find martyrs scattered throughout the ages, up until now. If you go look at the church in Sudan, people are being killed for their faith. Somehow we think that it's never going to happen, and it can't happen to us, but it is happening right now. Friends, this is not a pipe dream. It's happening to people in the world. The persecuted church is a real thing. Now, I get that we might not feel the full extent of it here, but we have to be prepared for it because we don't know what's coming. I'm not saying go look for persecution. I'm not saying go and try to jump in front of a bus on 620 and say, I died for Jesus. That's not the point here. The point here is be ready for it when it comes and know that God has got us. Jesus is warning us and he's reminding us that every single time the white horse goes out and the gospel is advanced, the red horse is going to be right behind him. And that red horse is persecution. It's a promise from God. The good news is we know who wins the war. Verse 5 continues. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. 
It's interesting. Where does the voice come from? It comes from the midst of the four living beings. Now, if you remember the architecture of heaven, the only thing that's in the midst of the four living beings is the throne. Which means, again, that this is being called out by God. It's not something that's happening just by accident. This is something that's part of God's plan moving forward. And what is this, what is this telling us? What does it mean? And it, I believe it, it means this. The black horse tells us that part of our suffering as the church will be economic. This is not globally spread economic difficulties. This is very isolated, very specific difficulties that are going to come to people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, again, if we go back to the original audience, the people that this book was first written to, do you remember how they had to operate within an environment that for them to participate in the economy of the day, they had to be a part of a trade guild? And in order for them to be a part of a trade guild, they had to worship to foreign gods? Or they had to become part of the imperial cult, which meant they worshipped Caesar as a god? And those people in those churches, some of them said, no ways, buddy, I'm not going to get behind that because my God is the only God that I'll ever worship. And because of that, I'm choosing to exclude myself from the economy. That's what's being spoken about here. Now, you might think to yourself, but we don't have any trade guilds today. We don't have any you know, imperial cults. There's no idols that we worship to participate in the economy. I want to tell you, they might not be blatantly out there, but they are there, friends. They are there all over the place, and there's going to come a time, I'm warning you all, and myself included in that, where we will have to make a decision. Sometimes we're going to be pushed to the point where we're going to have to lay aside our wealth and our economic uh, sort of benefits and say, I'm not going to go down this road anymore. I'm taking a stand for the truth. I'm going to stand with my God on his side and not your side. And it's a reality that all of us may have to bear at some point. Now, you might not be there yet, and that's great. Please, don't get me wrong. I'm not asking for this to happen to us. What I'm saying is when the time comes, God will prepare us and we will be ready. But in that moment in time, we will be excluded from the wealth of the world. Nobody likes me today. (laughs) What's interesting, though, is that there is a statement that I believe God throws into this at the end. He says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. There is the sense that while the church is suffering economic hardships, the luxuries of this world will be there and the rich will get richer and the church will get poorer. The temptation for us to want the luxuries of this world will be there. That's why they're always there. The luxuries, the nice stuff is there. And the temptation that the enemy wants us to fall under is, man, we want some of that. We can struggle. We're struggling to make ends meet and feed ourselves, but we want the oil and the wine. God's warning us that that's going to be a reality. Don't fall for the temptation of the enemy. If you're still unsure about this particular sort of interpretation about economic hardships as it relates to the believer, what you'll see is you're going to get back to this point again in Revelation. In fact, it's going to be spoken about quite a lot. Later on in the series, we're going to get to the mark of the beast. And without going into the detail about what that is, the one thing that we do know is for you to participate in the economy of the world, you have to carry the mark of the beast. Revelation 6 verse 7, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and looked, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. This pale horse, I believe, represents the suffering that's going to affect the entire world. And so now this is not focused in on the church. The church is going to suffer. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to suffer economic exclusion. Okay, great. But here's another judgment that's going to come. And this time it's going to affect everybody in the world. 
not just the church. It's going to affect the church because we're in the world, but we're not of the world. But it's going to impact everyone. And so let me just say this right now. If you're here this morning and you're reading this and say, Marco, I don't really like your interpretation of Revelations because it means that I have to suffer. I want you to know something that everybody's going to suffer. It's not just the church. Everybody in this world is going to suffer. This world is not getting better. And if you don't believe that suffering exists in this world today, I need to take your temperature. Because you don't have to look far to realize that suffering is rampant. It's all around us all the time. And so the truth is, everybody's going to suffer. The difference is what hope do we have in our suffering? Do we hope in Jesus and Him and the fulfillment of His plans and purposes? Or do we hope in nothing and then just hope that things will just magically get better? We know that they won't. And so we have an eternal hope. In this passage, there's four distinct woes that are mentioned. There's a parallel of this exact passage in Ezekiel 34, and you can go read that later on yourselves. But they might sound similar to some of the things we've read already, but I want to tell you they're very different. They're very different to any of the woes that the church can expect to experience. The first thing that's mentioned here is war. Remember, this passage, it speaks about how this horse was given the authority to kill with the sword. It's very different to that other sword that we just spoke about. That was the Makara. This sword here is the Rompea. It's the long sword. It's the sword that David used to cut Goliath's head off. It's the sword that the armies were equipped with when they go to battle. In other words, God is, God is saying to us this morning that be prepared, friends. War is coming. Now, again, you might say, well, what's new? It's here all the time. Exactly. This thing repeats itself over and over again. But don't be surprised by it. There are going to be wars. And some of them are going to escalate even higher and higher and more and often. And we're going to see crazy things happen. War is destined for this world. There will be wars where nation will rise against nation. The second thing that sort of is released in this is that there's going to be famine. Now, you might think, well, isn't that the economic suffering, the fact that there's rising inflation or hyperinflation? That wasn't hyperinflation that we spoke about earlier. That was us being persecuted for our faith. But now we are talking about things that come as a result of war. How many of you know that the gas prices in this world are super high right now? I mean, you didn't realize. I mean, I didn't realize either. Why? I mean, there's a million reasons. We can all argue why. But one of the reasons is that Russia now is you know, controlling certain amounts of oil and now the world's gone crazy and all of a sudden we see the consequences of war, famine. The truth is hyperinflation, dealing with stuff like this, all of the expenses that we're going to endure in this world are going to be poured out on this world and they're going to come, not just for the believer, but for the entirety of the world. We're seeing that happen today. And then he talks about pestilence. Pestilence is translated, that word is translated as death. And it literally means mass death from some type of disease. Now, I don't need to tell you all this, but we've just come out of a pandemic, right? We know what it means to be in a global pandemic. There's going to be more. I know it's not encouraging, but this is what the Word of God tells us. Think of smallpox, the bubonic plague, all of these things that have happened throughout the ages. These things are to be expected. Don't be surprised by them. And then finally, he talks about wild beasts. I don't get this one, to be honest. Like, I mean, for me, it's, I mean, I get it, but it's like, I mean, can like a bunch of wild beasts really kill one-fourth of the world's population? I'm not sure. But I do know that I come from Africa. The one thing that leopards do not do when you go out into the bush is ask you for a believer before they kill you. <laughs> they will kill indiscriminately. In fact, it reminds me of 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 25, when the Syrian army is resettling the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria. And what they do is they take all of these nations that they've captured along their sort of long crusade and they bring them back to Samaria and they put them in. And the Word of God says that because they did not believe in the Lord, the Lord sent in lions to devour them. That's the type of picture here. So I'm not sure if we're going to have an invasion of bears or what's going to happen or cougars or whatever those mountain lions you've got here. Maybe it's snakes. I don't know. But the fact is animals are going to be a part of the, the sort of uh, the, the sifting process. 
And so these four woes that we read here are directed to the world at large. They're symbolic of universal woes that will affect all of humanity, not just Christians. The good news, however, and this is something that we need to take notice of, is that God gives death a dominion and a boundary. He says to him, you can only attack one-fourth of the world at this point. In other words, who's in control? God. Death doesn't operate outside of the purview of God. God controls it all. Tyler, you guys can come up. I know you may be wondering at this point, well, you're probably wondering why did we come to church today? But you're also wondering, why would Jesus release all of this? Why would he allow this to happen? Why does this have to happen, especially to us as his believers? What's the point? Well, in some ways, Revelation 6 parallels Matthew 24. Jesus is predicting the fall of Jerusalem. And his disciples want all the details. And at the same time, they also can't understand, like, what's the point of all this? Jesus says this in Matthew 24. He says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. What's the point of this? Why is Jesus telling us this? Well, wouldn't you rather know? Wouldn't you rather know that all of this is in God's hands? That he's not up there playing Xbox and FIFA 2025 or whatever it is and forgotten about us on this earth, that everything is happening the way he has ordained it to happen. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but guess what? It's happening under his control. Do not be alarmed. Be ready. Be expectant. Be on your guard. This is coming. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. There is an end, and it's coming, but it's not yet. Take heart, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. That's pretty direct. And the gospel of the kingdom, verse 14, will be proclaimed throughout the world as the testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I have never had the privilege of giving birth to my own child, okay? And so I'm not trying to, um, what do you call it when you take on somebody? I don't know, what do you call it? Hey? I have empathy for my wife, big time. But I do know that having a child is a painful experience. I've seen my wife go through it three times. And I do know that bring, giving birth to that child is, for some people, the most excruciating pain that they'll experience in their lives. What I also know is that when the child is born, all of a sudden, the pains of the birth start to fade away quite quickly. And now you're looking at this new life, this new beginning, this new creation. When Jesus says to us that all of these things must take place because they're part of the birth pains, what we can do on the one hand is become defeated and say, oh no, Lord. On the other hand, we can say, Lord, wow, this is part of a plan. A plan that you have so graciously included me in because your name has been written on my heart. And so this new creation, this new existence, this new dimension that I get to participate in is not just a dimension, but it is a perfect one. One where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more wars, no more famine, no more pestilence. None of this will ever happen anymore. And guess what, Lord? I will be there with you. Jesus wants to remind us this morning that we have a privilege of being born at such a time as this. If we, wouldn't, if we didn't exist, we wouldn't be saved. But we get to go through this. Why? Because we get to see God's plan unfold before our eyes. The benefit we have is we have the totality of Scripture to guide us through it. I'm not saying it will be easy, but we have Him to rely on. Jesus is reminding us this morning that He loves us so much that He wants us to be prepared. 
He wants us to know what's coming, not because he doesn't like you and he wants you to suffer, because he wants you to stand firmly on his word. This morning, Jesus is reminding us that a persecuted church is a powerful church. When the church gets too comfortable, it gets fat. And when we get fat, we stop relying on God and we start thinking about the things that we have. But when we're in the state of dependence on God, you see, a persecuted church is a dependent church. It's a church that says, I can't do this without you, Lord. I can't face what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't know how I'm going to feed my children. I don't know how I'm going to stand against these judges who want to slay me right now and chop my head off. But I know you do, Lord, and so I'm going to trust you. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for this light momentary affliction. Now, just to put this in context, this is Paul. This light momentary affliction, he's in jail. He's been beaten. He's been stoned almost to the point of death. In fact, they thought he was dead. He's been shipwrecked. He can't provide for himself. He's in jail. He's relying on the gifts from other people to stay alive. He says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Whatever we go through on this earth, no matter how difficult it is, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, not a transient one, an eternal one. Beyond all comparison, there is nothing that this world can give you that will ever compare to what we will receive. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. This world will fade away. That's a promise. But guess what? The things that are eternal are forever. The things that are unseen, the stuff that we don't really know right now and we can't see right now are forever. And so the real question is not, why would Jesus do this? The real question every single one of us need to ask ourselves today and we need to ask the world out there is, do you know Jesus? Because here's the deal. When eternity wraps up, we're going to find ourselves on one side of the fence or the other. And that's the more important question. It's not what we deal with here. It's where we're going for eternity. Can I ask you to stand? I want to pray for us. You know, Lord, suffering is never easy and it's never something that we enjoy going through. But Lord, I take great comfort in knowing that your plan and, and, and purpose for this earth is perfect. That your word tells us that all things will work together for our good. And so at the end of all of this, Lord, we will see ourselves in that eternal kingdom with you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth. Thank you, Lord, for driving forth the gospel in our hearts, a gospel that says it is not about what you've done, who you are, how good you are, how religious you may be, that gives you any entitlement to the kingdom, but it's about what you did, Jesus, on the cross. Thank you that you died for us. And that is the only reason we are worthy. It's got nothing to do with us. Thank you that that invitation today is open to every single human being. I pray, Lord, that we as a church, as we look ahead and see that there could be rough waters, we would be more motivated than ever to take this gospel and to follow you, Lord, as you ride forth on this earth, no matter the cost, no matter the outcome, that we would be a church that presents the kingdom to the people of this world and tells them there is an eternal hope that's far greater than the systems of this world. Give us boldness, give us courage, and give us a destiny in your kingdom, Lord, with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.